All right. Welcome to Single Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. I'm a uh, writer and podcaster, uh, very amateur Elden Ring player, unfortunately. It's a recently adopted hobby. Other important facts about me, I had pasta for lunch, which not not really a good idea for productivity or health, but um, I met up with a journalism acquaintance, and it was very good. It was gnocchi, and she got a uh, mushroom... I think the word's tagliatelle. I hope I'm not uh, microaggressing any Italian listeners. It was really good. I should have got what she got, the uh, the mushroom tagliatelle thing. Um, I have a brief brief spiel I want to do today, but I'm mostly just going to take your questions and comments on anything. The spiel is about how – maybe I'm focusing too much on this article. The Emily Bazelon New York Times Magazine article on the trans youth stuff, which is, of course, a subject I know a little bit about and I'm interested in. There's been this shift where like a lot of professional journalists and commentator types believe that the only reason there's perceived to be any controversy over this issue is because of like some sort of basically conspiracy uh, that there's like back channel coordination leading Emily Bazelon to write that piece or leading Ryan Grimm to write a piece he wrote about how um, imagine air quotes if you want, but cancel culture is leading to a lot of progressive meltdowns uh, in, you know, nonprofits and, and political campaigns and stuff like that. And what is interesting and worries me a little bit is like, I think there's something about being online, uh, hanging out mostly with folks who agree with you. And I'm susceptible to this as well, where it like, it becomes harder and harder to imagine that anyone who disagrees with you isn't an idiot or a moron or a Russian bot or something like that. The Russian bots are a particularly good example because like, you'll see the reality is there's just like a a lot of dumb reactionary people on Twitter, but you'll see people who sort of can't accept that. And like the Russian bot thing is a better explanation. And there are some Russian bots and there's, uh, FSB folks on Twitter, but the fact is, like, whatever your stance is, there's a lot of people who just straightforwardly disagree with you and will express that disagreement. And I think there's something unhealthy about walling yourself into a community where something like the Bazelon article or the Ryan Grimm article, which are about like the sorts of subjects that people are interested in, people are interested in meltdowns and powerful institutions, people are interested in the questions of puberty blockers and hormones. If you read stories like that and your only response is, well, the only reason someone could be interested in something like this is like some sort of conspiracy, you've really lost the plot. And the weirdest thing is like some of the folks making this argument are actual journalists. Like it's their job to read the room in a sense and to know what people want to read. And a lot of this is just making me think of like the the whole um, – and folks should definitely get in the queue because I'm, I'm running out of steam soon. I just want to answer your questions or take your comments. But it, it sort of reminds me of like why the Substack and like independent podcasting thing have worked so well for a handful of us. And it's basically just like a willingness to talk about stuff people want to hear about. And if, if you have one group of journalists who who sort of walk toward those stories and are willing to have conversations or to write about – certain controversies and you have another group that's just like, no, the, no one actually cares about this except bigots and maggot chuds. Uh, we're not going to really have a conversation about it. it. It shouldn't surprise you which group does better. Not that that's the only factor at work here. Anyway, Kennedy, what's up? Hey, Jesse, what's going on? Hey, sorry. I Hello? got muted for a sec. How's it going, man? 
Oh, no, that's right. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, just want to find out, um, two episodes ago, this is, I think this is related to the, the, the spiel that you just gave, two episodes of the, um, uh, Barbara, you, you spoke briefly about the mouthwash, uh, documentary, What is Woman? I was just wondering, have you actually got around to watching it? I know you were saying you're really reluctant to give money to the Daily Wire, but you want to try and find a way to watch it. Have you got around to watching it? And if yes, what do you think? Obviously, with all the qualifiers that, Documentaries are generally not the best place to find factual information and balanced perspectives, especially on hot, on hot button topics like this. But I just wanted to know um, if you have seen it and what do you think? Do you think he was good faith, malicious? Did he, you know uh, just the whole the whole thing? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, so I think documentaries can be good good sources of information. In this case, he's he's a socially conservative right winger, and he made a socially conservative right wing documentary. Um, we talked about it on the premium episode of the podcast, but he he uses some questionable tactics and there's situations where he like I, I didn't I don't mind if you interview a professor and the professor can't answer your questions and you make them look dumb. That comes with being a professor. That's most of what he does in the documentary. A couple of times he does it to like sort of random LGBT people, which I don't like, but you know, Daily Wire audiences unfortunately lap that stuff up. I think my argument to Katie was basically like, this isn't going away. Like this whole thing that, oh, liberals can't answer the question of what is a woman. And I think rather than just accuse this of being akin to literal Nazi propaganda, that's what Nathan Robinson of Current Affairs said, that it's like Nazi propaganda, which it it isn't, even the parts of it that are (laughs) offensive. Um, You might want to reflect on the fact that someone like Matt Walsh can make so many liberals look so stupid so easily. That might tell you something about, uh, you know, some close to home problems for you and and the fact that you haven't really bothered developing good arguments that resonate with normies. Uh, So I think it's like a useful documentary in that sense. It's also like, I don't know, it's a little bit entertaining because these professors are pretty wacky. I I don't think they're like representative of all professors, but uh, I think I'm pretty well positioned to say that, no, it is not Nazi propaganda. It's definitely right wing. But I I think uh, there are probably lessons that liberals should draw from it. Oh, yeah, uh, because I'm still yet to watch it. I I did manage to find out. I'm still yet to watch the whole thing. I've seen clips here and there. But the people that he was interviewing, these are like well-known, sort of well-regarded professors in in like gender studies and all that kind of stuff, right? It wasn't like he just picked random people, right? He went to sort of people that would talk to him because I'm guessing that not everyone who's prominent in this would talk to someone like Matt Walsh, but the people that he did actually interview, they're not like just some randoms that he just picked up, especially the academics and the doctors. Well, they, they range from, so like he, he interviewed a Tennessee gender studies professor who, whatever, it's a random gender studies professor. He also interviewed Marcy Bowers and Michelle Forcier or Forcier, who are both like brand name folks in the, um, in the world of like transition medicine. So it was a range. He also, and Katie mentioned this in the podcast, he was pretty dishonest in how he pitched this to people. He like sort of used a front person and pretended to be with a group called like the gender unity project. I think he just like made up a group. So he was definitely dishonest. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure within the, the bounds of the law and like fraud, yeah, yeah, but yeah, 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 he was not, he was not honest in his attempts to like get people on camera. But, um, I, I don't know. I sort of feel like that's on you, the person agreeing to be in a documentary to do your, your legwork. Uh, so, anyway, yeah, it, it, my... it reminds me. So it's sort of like, um, I know there was a, uh, intelligent design documentary about 10 years ago that also was accused of using some under the table 
uh, tactics to sort of get like prominent biologists and people on there. And then after he came out, they sort of started to complain that, yeah, we, did, we didn't exactly know what was happening. We were hoodwinked into doing it. So if, if you're saying there was some underhanded tactics there, that, 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 it, brings, it brings that up. It brings um it brings that up to mind, but yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting because I was, I, was, I, I stumbled upon um, biologist. Uh, I think it's P.Z. Meyer, um, his blog, and mm-hmm. I was reading one of his posts, and he was literally talking about how, you know, the question of what is a woman is not something that you can define easily. You need it needs to be like a dissertation involving sociology, psychology, and all this. And I was thinking, where am I? This is this is actual biology saying this, and I'm like, okay, who? Uh, it's <laughs> some, it, it's, make, it's it's making people question like, what, what we've all known all along is it is it wrong or is something happening? But yeah, it's a uh, it's very very interesting. But yeah, and I just wanted to get your thoughts on that and see what you, you think. I'm still yet to watch it and see and see what's going on. Thanks, Kenny. Appreciate the call. No and yeah, I, I've seen um, I saw Jason Stanley. I think the I'm gonna take Blin, but um. And just stay muted, Tom. I just got one more thing to say on this. Um, Jason Stanley basically, like on Twitter, was like, "Well, you can't really define anything." Which, yes, there is a a nerdy philosophical sense in which I think like all definitions fail in one way or another, and like there's a border. At, at, when you disassemble the chair, at what point is it no longer a chair? Whatever. Like everyone knows that we're talking about how terms should be defined in the law, and we have a lot of fuzzy terms that are defined in the law, including race um or that are used in law and this is the one term where you're not supposed to the idea that there even is an argument over you know who is a woman is seen as bigoted so i don't think you should be surprised when people point to the one area where you're not supposed to be able to even attempt to define it and say we should talk about this anyway blin uh what's up yeah i thought um it's it's interesting. This is such like a both sides issue. I spent a chunk of today working on a piece about heritage, the Heritage Foundation, which did their own awful piece on the stuff. My one of my only critiques of Bazlan was I thought here or there, yeah, Blin, your volume is really low. By the way, I'm going to try to normalize it when I produce this, but I don't know if there's a way for you to fix this. Um, here and there, I thought Bazlan glossed over the literature slightly too credulously, and and just was like there were areas where she didn't caveat and hedge as much as she should but in a 10,000 word piece like there's going to be some area where I disagree with someone else's treatment so yeah I thought she was she was slightly too credulous but I, I in retrospect I sort of was too in my Atlantic piece because if you're going to criticize anything about youth gender medicine i think there's a natural tendency to want to like be like well look there's some evidence here we don't want to question that we don't want to question the stuff that shouldn't be questioned but there's this other area um it could be she just disagrees with me about the strength of the evidence but yeah Uh, are you asking because you had particular thoughts on this or were you just curious in 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 my opinion and this opinion probably isn't of any help to Basil among the Twitter masses. I, I thought her piece demonstrated that she really knows her shit on this and she talked to the right people and she uh, she did a really good job. So I, I don't want those small quibbles to uh, detract from my overall uh, endorsement of it. Again, not that an endorsement for me is what, what she wants. But uh, anyway, yeah, that's my stance on that. Thanks, Blin. Eli, what's up? Uh, hello. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, you're very loud, actually. There's been volume issues, but if you could turn down your... Um, try to talk oh. to you again. Hello? Yeah, that's now? better. I Sorry, I might have been my own setting, so I'm, I'm oh. incompetent. What's up, Eli? Yes. 
<laughs> I'm, I'm incompetent. I don't think you're incompetent. Thank you. Uh, but uh, um, first of all, I'd like to uh, wish you good luck in your Twitter wars, which seem to be ongoing. Yeah, that's unfortunate. <laughs> yes. Yes, so I wish you, you know, there's the war in Ukraine, but you're you're fighting a more important fight. Much important, exactly. Yeah, uh, I wanted to say two things. One, um, uh, it is a criticism of the podcast on a very important issue. You and Katie do not learn how to pronounce foreign words beforehand. Oh, which, God, what did we mispronounce uh, now? So it's the, the French slur for gays. It's not PD, it's pede. Oh, this was on Katie, not me. I take no responsibility for her bigotry sorry, against yes, French Katie, people. And, and if you could as well, of course, admonish Katie very strongly for this. But the other thing is that I think she would like, she, she'd be amused to know, you know, she wrote the piece about Florian Jaeger, uh, about him being a sexual predator. And I don't think she put in her piece that the name Jaeger means hunter. Oh, that was a very good detail that she should have included. Yes, so I think it really fits in with her thing. So if she writes about this again, she could put this, and it's really funny. Um, but uh, the the thing that I wanted to say is, I just yesterday I saw this a this uh, an old friend of mine who's very scientifically literate talking about how biological sex is more of a social convention, and I was I think that is you know that these efforts are spectacularly misguided and will and are backfiring as you talk about. I was, I don't know the history of the discourse. Can you say something about when this started? This basically, this vibe shift, so to speak, not this vibe shift, but the transition from gender separated from sex, sex isn't real, you were all being gaslit. You know, I'm actually not that great on the history of this. So there's one book that I really like for other purposes is, um, excuse me, Age of Fracture by the historian Daniel Rogers. And, he has some stuff about this and his critique is like there was a period where feminism, I think this was like in the eighties and this was pre the trans stuff. He said feminism stopped worrying so much about like the material needs of women and started debating what is a woman. And I bet some of that stuff started there. There's also, there's these like weird mutant mish mishmashes of like uh, Judith Butler, sometimes misread Judith Butler, sometimes maybe properly read because the writing often isn't very clear. Uh, sometimes mashing together her with like weird Tumblr stuff. I can't say for sure exactly where it came from. To me, like the most important and influential idea is that is simply that people are who they say they are and that that applies not only just to gender identity, but to gender and sex. And if you're going to accept the concept of gender identity, saying someone's gender identity is what they say they is, is perfectly valid and accurate because it's a totally subjective thing. I always have gotten tripped up on the idea of um, stretching gender identity to also include biological sex and gender. That's where I think it gets complicated and where some trade-offs come. But um, at this point, I'm just talking to talk because I, I can't really answer your question of exactly where it came from other than to recommend Rogers, uh, who has some treatment of this. Yeah, the last thing I want to say is I... Uh... I wonder what you think of this. Basically, I I think that why I'm interested a lot of the time in these kinds of fights, you know, the Twitter nonsense, and it's not nonsense, but, you know, the drama is that in the face of, you know, the Republicans and the right wing, which seems so competent and uh, frightening, these kind of culture wars uh, are kind of a relief, I guess. And I was wondering if you... I don't know if anyone else feels that way as though 
this matches in a this way is more like this is more winnable than actually fighting like republican state legislatures or something or less depressing i don't know yeah. if it's more winnable. i i think not just that but that there's a general sense that american politics are so paralyzed this is actually part of the thesis of my book on a totally different subject but if you have a situation where people for understandable reasons conclude that like national politics can't really deliver them anything and that we're paralyzed and we're polarized. I think it makes perfect sense that they would turn their activist energy or their ideological energy closer to home. And that could mean, for example, trying to purify their own spaces from like wrong thinkers. And that could explain some of the witch hunt dynamics going on. So this is the kind of theory you need to present carefully because there's no way to like run a parallel universe simulator, but I'm, I'm very sympathetic to it. Thank you and um, good good luck and keep well and take rests and you know mental health and involved and and so on. So. Thank you. Sorry about the pede pe thing. Yeah, hey. pede. You need to you know it's a word. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, Ben. But yes, we will we'll be careful about pronouncing pede. What's up, eh? Uh, hey, Jesse. How are you? How are you keeping? Good. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. Uh, Eli just referenced um, vibe shift there um, in a different context, but I was just wondering. Um, uh, whether you've seen Andrew Sullivan use that term a lot lately about like the, the, the vibe shift in terms of the discourse around uh, gender issues and the fact that like some of the uh, more mainstream media seem to be more comfortable now in publishing divergent views um, and uh, whether you agree that there has been a vibe shift and uh, what you think is driving it. Yeah, no, I think there's definitely things that have been getting better for a while. This is why I've been like... Um... <laughs> You know, in part because I have some back channel conversations with editors and, and have I'm not that well positioned, but I have some sense of which way the winds are blowing. I've tried to discourage nihilism in mainstream outlets. Um, I think basically I just got a, a DM from a journalist uh, today and he was basically he said something I've heard before, which is like in affluent white middle and high schools this is so obviously a thing which huge with huge numbers of kids um saying they're trans most of them i think not going on hormones or blockers but he's like this is such an obvious thing and it's so obviously happening that you can like only deny it for so long um and the people whose kids are in these schools they're the same people who are editors and writers at major magazines. So there's, I've been, I think mostly like a younger group trying to deny anything's going on or like there's anything worth talking about here. And then there's like the parents of 15 and 16 year olds who are like, yes, there's something going on here. On top of that, I think the fact that in Europe, there's been so much controversy about these treatments. Um, the first, the first time a European government or health system comes out and says, this evidence sucks, you can ignore it. And that's what happened with the UK. Then Sweden does it. Then Finland does it. There's a statement in France, not as impactful. And there's a statement from like the Royal College of um, Psychiatrists in Australia and New Zealand. At a certain point, if you're a competent science writer or editor, you sort of, even if you're late on the uptake, you got to be like, yeah, something's going on here that we should probably treat journalistically. So those are what I would view as the contributing factors alongside a broader recognition on the part of journalists, uh, or at least editors that they can't, they can't write for like the 10% of wokest Americans, like their audience will just shrivel. So like when the New York times, um, you know, hires, uh, John McWhorter or puts Michael Powell on the free speech beat, or even, even less importantly, like assigns me or Zed Jelani to write a book review, 
they're basically that's them saying we 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 need to expand our fare a little bit. So I think those are all contributing factors to what's going on. Yeah, I'd agree with you about all of that. I think some part of it as well is probably that I think that the activists, like the gender uh, activists, have become more prevalent as well and more prominent and their, I suppose, ideology is more widely known now by the general population and the general society. And I think it's a a little bit more concerning now in terms of certain issues like the controversies you you mentioned um, in terms of like uh, the European countries pushing back on some elements of the treatment plan and just all together then with the increased prevalence of the, you know, um, uh, people identifying as transgender or non-binary or non-gender conforming and then the increased um, uh, awareness of that and also at the same time the advocates and activists pushing for all these people to be committed to you know quite significant and potentially um, permanent and irreversible treatment I think all of that together at the same time is just causing people and like obviously it was the, the right wing initially were pushing back and have been pushing back in I suppose, uh, an excessive manner in some regards, like and yes. can be quite offensive. And I think now it's it's more important that, you know, other liberals and centrists, etc., are airing like reasonable concerns. And I think that's a debate then. And I also think another important factor is like that uh, non-binary journalist um, who came out in the um, article yesterday in The Cut. I think you referenced it on Twitter and Andrew Sullivan was talking about it as well as part of the vibe shift. And they were just saying that, like, they don't think people should be as precious about their pronouns now and people should be more charitable to people who maybe make mistakes if it's done, if it's not done in an, in an intentionally offensive manner. And I think that as well, if people themselves who are, you know, um, you know, non-binary or trans, if they also agree that, like, sometimes this is just excessive and not helpful in terms of, like, admonishing people who are probably going to be your allies, like, but, like, are going to be turned off by, like, this really, really over-the-top um, rhetoric at times. I think if if, if people within the movement are, you know, coming to that conclusion themselves, now I think all of these together are just like really positive signs that like this could improve, you know, further over the coming months and years. Hopefully, yeah. Like. No, I think it will improve, and I also think it will benefit trans people seeking medical treatment. That improves. That it improves because you can't do good research and you can't do good advocacy if if people are afraid of being screamed down or have, having their um reputations and careers destroyed so yeah i think we're in a hopeful moment for this stuff and a lot of the journalism is getting better so yeah yeah absolutely that's the end game like you want the the best treatment and management of all these cases and if that's transition then that or if that's like medical transition then that should be supported but if it's not then that should be explored as well it's just whatever's the best interests of the person yep uh no argument here thank you for the call cool thanks patrick what's up hey jesse hello Uh, I just wanted to check and see whether or not uh, you've braced yourself uh, or not yet for the FINA decision regarding uh, trans swimmers in international competitions. Um, I mean, we, we know what the decision is, right? Well, yeah, but I mean, have you been blamed for it yet? Like you get blamed for everything else. Oh, um, I don't think I, whereas I'm personally responsible for the, you know, Florida, Florida Department of Health and Human Services and Greg Abbott. I think for some reason I'm not seen as personally responsible for the, uh, the sports stuff or at least or maybe i just have my quality filter on and a bunch of people are blaming me for it and i haven't seen them yet uh, well so i guess that kind of goes along with the vibe shift but uh although i guess it's not really the vibe shift because this is what's happening uh in europe el- elsewhere but it does really seem like there's kind of uh 
we're becoming more out of lockstep with the kind of rest of the world. And I suppose we don't really necessarily know what they're kind of basing their decisions on, but it does seem like there's a kind of large consensus that disagrees with uh, what a certain subset of writer kind of, or activist have on the kind of issue. I think Ryan Grimm did a piece a while back where they, the trans activists did polling on whether on like specific issues like within sports. And they found that no matter how they phrase the question, the popular support just wasn't there. And I think there's not only that, but some of the numbers were so bad. They didn't even release their own numbers. Yeah. So I think the, this is a thing that Freddie DeBoer talks about, but I think there's a a lack of trying to convince people that you're right that's going on, where if people want to write articles about like how this is actually a good thing, you can, but you can't just rule by fiat saying this is good, there will be no questions going further. Yeah, I think the, the strategies failed completely. I mean, obviously, I was just actually at the aforementioned lunch venting about this a little. I think Katie and I are both like slightly resentful. Like, what the fuck was the point of all this? So all the uh, what felt like pretty intense attempts to like have our careers ruined when all all that happened is four years later, more and more outlets are printing what we printed. But um, overall, I'm I'm just glad that you know there's going to be more and better journalism in this area because things look pretty dire for a while. Well, I do have to say, although I'm sure it was terrible to go through for both of you at the time, I am glad to where you are because I didn't really learn about you till you guys started doing the podcast. And I have to say, you guys are one of my favorite podcasts. That's very nice of you to say. I would not do it differently. This Overall, this has worked out for both of us. Along the way, there were some frustrating moments. But um, yeah, I appreciate it, Patrick. Patrick dropped. It's not my fault. What is up? You're very, you're very low. Any way to boost your, your mic? That'll work. Just just talk loudly. Regarding your quoting Hymore, <laughs> and she's basically saying that yep. um, there's this basically the journalist group caught on Jezebel. Kabbalist. Kind of yep. kind of draw in- I don't think there's any problem with journalists being on a list of other journalists. The, the potential problem is if you're a straight news writer, there might be some restrictions on what they'd want you to post to a list like that. Or... You know, if you're on a certain beat and you say dumb shit in a listserv and it gets leaked, you could obviously get in trouble. That's all in the game if you choose to post stuff to a listserv. I don't think there's any ethical issue here. And I think in both 2008 and 2018, I got to explain this briefly. In 2008, um, there was a right-wing uproar over a list I was on called Journalist. And Dave Weigel got fired from the Washington Post because he'd been critical of conservatives on it. And he was on the, and is on the conservative beat. 2018, Jezebel gets some posts of mine from basically the sequel to the same listserv. And they try to portray it as like a transphobic listserv, which is just, it's ridiculous for a million different reasons. I tweeted about this earlier, but basically the journalist cherry picked from the thread where I posted my Atlantic article, only the positive uh, messages. And there were, there were people supporting me for sure. There were also people who disagreed with me. There were people who disagreed with like, um, forcing my critics to like provide evidence because there's a little of that going on. It became like a fairly chaotic exchange. And, um, anyway, at the end of the day, I just, I don't really see the argument against, um, journalists being on listeners. They should just exercise professional caution. And I think people tend to overstate the amount to which there's like coordinated messaging going on. I think, what happens is more subtle. And it's if you hang out only with like-minded people, including on listservs, your thinking and writing will all start to resemble one another's. And I do think like the Gawker diaspora, where they have the same takes on everything for the most part, 
there's some good members of the Gawker diaspora, but for the most part, they just have the same takes on everything. You know what their take is on something before they even say it. Uh, I would never want to be that kind of uh, commentator or, or journalist. In the same group, I'm not in any. Not I happen to not be in any groups with the fifth column or Substackers. The Substack, more or less. I mean, I. No. I mean, I, I agree with them. I think we all have a certain skepticism of certain strains in on the left or liberalism, and that's why we get lumped together, and that's why we started Substack or, or podcast, but there's plenty of disagreement there. And no, there's no there's no listserv or group chat involving uh, me and those other... I'm actually on zero listservs or big journalism group chats, and I left the Kabbalist because it got really toxic during the reckoning, for the record. So, no, I am not on any list like that. No, yeah, I don't. I don't see any ethical issues. I, there's professional listservs in every field, and as with anything else you do, you need to check your biases and you need to make sure it doesn't infect your work or affect its quality. But there's a million ways journalists can be biased, uh, including hanging out with sources or attending certain events. Um, I think me going to Hereticon, uh, which I you know disclosed, is much is a much bigger potential ethical issue than than being on any listserv. To be honest. Thank you. Uh, we're going to do Joshua and Jacob, and then we got to wrap up. But if folks I don't get to, if you come into my next one or my next couple and chat me and remind me that you were waiting in the queue, I'll bump you to the front. But it's just going to be Joshua and Jacob for the rest of this show. Joshua, what's up? Hey, Jesse. Hey. Uh, not sure how I feel about talking to a Jewish neo-Nazi, but I'm going to ask some questions anyways. We're rare, be- rare breed. Yeah, what can we do? Um I, I guess part comment, part question. I, I, I saw over the past, I guess, week or so, or maybe that's two since the article came out in uh, New York Mag, uh, the amount of criticism, and you tend to often say, point to the parts that you disagree with. And I don't think I've seen anyone yet who has. Um, I was wondering if I missed any, if there's anyone out there that has. And the one person I did seem to see that did push back made a comment about essentially, well, if we were to, I think, take away treatment, it's like a solution of saying jumping out of a plane. We don't know if jumping out of a plane without a parachute won't be harmful until we try. And I'm curious on your kind of response to that of, you know, like, you know, the criticism that potential harm of taking it away um, and being adverse to that risk. Um, can you uh, mute yourself just because I'm I'm coming through your speaker? Um, the idea that not letting a kid go on blockers or hormones is like throwing someone out of a plane with a parachute is completely ridiculous. And we have, I just did a couple uh, a post recently, um, looking at all the studies, science versus cited about kids and blockers and hormones. And the one study in there that like compared a group that did go on these treatments to didn't, there's nothing in there to suggest that having to wait to go on these treatments had some sort of horrific effect on them. And and one of the most egregiously dishonest areas of this, um, because it's such a high stakes issue, is the line that if you don't let someone go on blockers or hormones, they will kill themselves. There's There's like no decent evidence to suggest that straightforward a relationship. I do think if someone has severe unrelenting gender dysphoria and they go through puberty uh, of their natal sex, I think that could make things worse. I think there could be outlying cases where that is a factor in suicide, but people are positing way too straightforward a relationship here. And 
it's really bad because you suicide. A, you suicide is like such a serious subject that you need to talk about it and write about it carefully. B, I think there's some evidence that like contagion is a thing. And if you repeat over and over and over, and of course trans kids are aware of this, and in some cases they know, um, they know like what to say to get hormones and blockers. But if you repeat over and over, you're going to kill yourself if you don't get blockers. You're going to kill yourself if you don't get blockers. It's you could cause that, like, or contribute to that. So. I think that's a ridiculous analogy. Um, the one uh, critique I saw was that she briefly mentioned Genspect, which is a group uh, Genspec, which is um, a group of parents skeptical of, of gender transition. Uh, but she, Bazelon herself, is partly skeptical of their argument. In my experience, if you cite anyone who's skeptical of this stuff, you'll be told that you're basically citing a Nazi, and that's a reason not to take you seriously. So I don't take seriously the idea that she did something wrong in quoting Genspec. The the fact is this is a controversy and a lot of parents disagree on this and you that's part of the story. So um that was the only thing I saw remotely uh where someone like remotely pointed to actual language in the piece they didn't like. I thought I think it was mostly just like, oh it's horrible. We can't say why, but it's horrible. Yeah, that was the impression I got, which is kind of wild that no one's stepping up to actually critique the piece. Uh also really depressing that people seem to be questioning whether journalists should be objective and ask these questions. Uh, but with this release of this piece, and I guess, you know, time will tell if it if it truly is becoming less taboo to talk about it. But if this sticks, have you got any inquiries to talk on any major publications, TV, radio, print about this? I mean, since you are one of those people that's, you know, been one of the, the first people to address this issue. Uh. No, and no, nothing new has come in since the Baslon thing. I think they reached out to Baslon, which is understandable, uh, but that's fine with me. I mean, I I got to write a piece on it for the Atlantic, and I reviewed a book for the New York Times. So I've had I've had some good opportunities, and it's really, really propelled my newsletter, which is like an independent source of income I never could have hoped for. So this also came up at the lunch I was at, but part of me is like a little bit annoyed because. Most other beats, if you put in the amount of time required to like write a 12,000 word piece on something, you're then considered to have some level of expertise in it. And like mainstream outlets will ask you to write for them. In my case, it's only the center to the right ones that will, um, in terms of mainstream outlets, that will commission pieces with the exception of that time thing, which is a big exception. So yeah, it's frustrating. It does feel like I, I didn't get to do the normal, like building up a beat and then writing about it regularly. But I got my newsletter, which is a better rate for online pieces anyway. So I think it all worked out. Have you considered entertaining maybe people, uh, publications that are more on the right? And I guess probably my guess is you'd give them a perspective that they wouldn't be entirely happy about because you do support in some cases uh, hormones and you do have a very nuanced, you know, have you thought about kind of coming in, you know, and, you know, cheekily, I guess, offering a very nuanced opinion that they wouldn't be so interested in? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I write for The Spectator, which is on the right, although frequently heterodox, and I, I've done some stuff for them on this. Um, I don't know. I, the National Review one time reached out to me before the Atlantic article was out. My my Atlantic editor was asked me to hold off. It wasn't a good rate anyway. So I don't, I don't really see the upside in writing for, like, conservative publications on this uh, versus my newsletter. I, I guess in theory, like, you're taking up a slot that they might give to someone further to the right or with, with less nuanced views on this. But it's just, it's not, I don't think it's worth my time, although I could understand the argument for it. Okay, sounds good. Have a great week.
Thanks, Joshua. Jake will be the last caller. Again, if you're waiting in line now, uh, just uh, send a note when the next room starts, and I'll bump you to the front. What's up, Jacob? Hey, good evening, Jesse. There was a tweet from uh, Nellie Bowles a little while ago that seems to have indicated you had a tattoo last night. Was that correct, or is that some sort of joke? Had a tattoo last night. Uh, Nellie what Bowles tweeted to you, LOL, so weird, but seriously, the, the blood sacrifice you brought last night was fabulous. Thank you. Hope the tattoos are healing. Oh, I think she was just joking about the idea of like um, a conspiracy because I was I was talking about this idea that that all this journalism is because of back channel conspiracies. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, I was wondering if it was some sort of joke or if that was actually real. Nope, no tattoos, but, and uh, no plans, no plans to get a tattoo. Oh, okay. It, to go back to uh, some of your earlier dialogue about folks who live in this world that everyone who think that everyone who disagrees with them must be some kind of Nazi or troll or Russian bot. Curious to know if you have any Republican friends being a Brooklyn liberal. No, I have a very, well, overall, I have a very politically monolithic group of friends because I have no one who I would call a friend who I would like get a beer with one-on-one who's a Trump supporter, which, of course, I'm in a bubble of my own. I do think I have, because a lot of my friends are just like Normie Obama liberals and then some other friends are in media, I think I have a fairly wide range of views on the left for what that's worth. But no, I don't don't really have... um, you know, I have respectful online relationships with some like never Trump Republican types, but I have no real life Trump friends now. Right, okay. Yeah, I was gonna say, you know, there's a lot of Republicans who aren't even never Trumpers, but also just aren't Trump supporters. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is like a class that some people don't want to acknowledge exists, but is actually quite large. I mean, there's like there's Republican economic policies I find like really bad and think will harm vulnerable people. I, I hate to use that term because it's been so abused, but I do. But, you know, I think there's people who aren't bad people who hold those views. I think there's just something qualitatively different about thinking Trump is the answer to anything or that, you know, when he says we should ban Muslims, that that doesn't instantly disqualify him from office. So I just, I just, I think it's a different level. Maybe it's an aesthetic thing and I'm putting too much stock into it, but I, I feel strongly uh, my stigma toward Donald Trump. Oh yeah. I oh, know. I just does a whole class of, people who are on the right but aren't necessarily Trump supporters, but they also aren't never Trumpers. Yes. You, you have a lot of, like, you know, very milquetoast right-wing people who just don't really care for Trump but don't proactively hate him either. Yeah, I think that's probably a pretty, pretty big group. Yeah, and it's, it's sort of funny because, like, oftentimes I think that the existence of that group is not necessarily acknowledged because it's easier to smear everybody on the right as being one thing or another. I agree. I do think that there's been such an attempt in some quarters of the right to like purge non-Trump supporters and what's going on at the top is like pretty culty that I understand why people get that impression. But yeah, I, you know, also there was just a poll at, well, small poll, but a poll out of New Hampshire suggesting that Trump isn't even uh, beating DeSantis there anymore. So there's, there's definitely been some shift and, uh, I agree. It's important not to overstate the level of um, monolithic Trump support on the right. But he does. He still doesn't get, enjoy very high support. Uh, yes, he, he certainly does enjoy high levels of support, although I actually, frankly, think that that's starting to wane. Yeah, it might be. Especially just 
both be, whether it's from his social media ban or also from just the fact that it's been 18 months and people have stopped caring. I think that he has lost some of those diehards. Yeah. Um, these are all fair points. I agree. Yeah. And I think it's like interesting now because like you're seeing like this like news head of CNN. I don't know what his technical title is boss, president, CEO, whose like strategy is to kind of moderate the network which i understand but like i frankly don't really think it's going to go anywhere because cnn is already in many ways rightly or wrongly tarnish its reputation with all those people who they think are going to watch again so yeah especially if they don't purge some of the more controversial names there which they don't seem to be willing to do yeah uh no I, i agree with all this and frankly, I also don't think it will last very long, especially if Trump decides to run again in 2024, then the easy the easy money will be to have Brian Stelter on there ranting about how, you know, he's causing the end of journalism, even though, you know, folks like Jamal Khashoggi are being murdered 4,000 miles away. And the U.S. media is actually doing quite well, all things considered. Yeah. Uh... Which... I found this like very interesting for all like the shrill caterwauling you hear about Trump's attacks on the free press. The reality is that the U.S. media is still quite free and is still doing quite well. Yeah, there's um, yeah. I mean, I, I, there's often a lack of perspective, though. Uh, I do think yeah. Trump's approach was pretty. I, I think he he would be a tyrant if he could be a tyrant. If there was a different oh, system, he'd slide right into that role. Yeah, that, that's probably true. And, like, yeah. it goes back to, there was this thing that Andrew Sullivan said. I can't remember when, but sometime in the last two years, he was critiquing a human rights campaign fundraising email he got that was talking about the worst attack on transgender people ever in history. And Andrew was just talking about how he came up in the gay rights movement long before HRC movements existed. And he was like, these people have to have been born yesterday to think that that, that whatever it was was the worst attack in history. Because yeah. I've seen a hell of a lot worse. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I think there's an unfortunate tendency to lack any perspective and to just treat everything as the worst thing ever. But um, anyway, thank you for the call, Jacob. I appreciate yeah. it. Have a good weekend. Happy you Pride. Too. Happy Friday. Uh, yes, I hope everyone has a good weekend. I would ask, as always, if you enjoy this, to let other people know about it. Get other people on the platform. And, uh, of course, you can check out my newsletter. I will have that big piece. It's unfortunately big. I didn't want it to be big, but it got big. It always does. Uh, about the heritage, terrible puberty blockers hormone study that, unfortunately, the right is passing around like crazy. And then, uh, yeah, check out the podcast. Check out everything. Just quit your job cut ties to your family and spend it all consuming my content. That is all I ask of you. I ask so little. Thank you, everyone. Have a good weekend, and I will uh, see you soon.